0: You know, what was the Powerball the other night? Like like three quarters of a billion dollars. Mm. I honestly, legitimately, no joke, don't know what the fuck I would do if I ever won that kind of money. (laughs) Right. What, where am I going to go? What am I, I'm just, all right, obviously I don't need to work anymore. So how am I going to, what am I going to do with my days? Like what, you know, I legitimately give me all the money in the world. I don't know what the hell I do with it. May I, may
1: I make a suggestion for what you could do with it? Thank you, please. Could you buy Twitter, please? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I mean, maybe, you know, but seriously, like, what the hell do you do? What would you do? What would you do today if you won, you know, a $500 million all of a sudden? Yeah, I don't know. I
1: I I have on my computer this perpetual list of uh, TV shows that I want to catch up on that keep getting <laughs> longer and not shorter. So I feel like I'm just going to put a huge dent in that and uh, and maybe continue to do gamble on once a week.
0: There, I think there's there, there's something existential crisisy about coming into that kind of money.
1: Yeah. You know, let me find out. Let sure. Me, let me sure. see what happens. Give me give me three quarters of a billion dollars and let's see how I do with it.
0: Gamble on,
1: fellas. Gamble <laughs> on. Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by my co-host, USBets Senior Analyst Jeff Edelstein. This week on the show, we'll talk about when Kentuckians will be able to legally bet on sports, how hard it is to get $100,000 down on a college baseball game, and who's still in the hunt in the biggest WSOP main event ever. Plus, we ask the question... Is there more of a sure thing for getting rich betting sports than by fading Gamble-on's (laughs) bankroll bets?
0: Yeah, uh, sad but true. I told you, like, months ago that you shouldn't let me bet during the non-NFL season, (laughs) but you wouldn't listen to me. All right, we're also going to be welcoming Bob Jarvis, a law professor at the Shepherd Broad College of Law at Nova Southeastern University, to talk about just what the hell happened in the world of Florida sports betting. And we're also going to talk to him about uh, gambling in Nazi Germany, because, you know, why not? But first, let's get to the news.
2: Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling.
1: Let's start this week in Kentucky, where sports betting was legalized on March 31st, and already, just a few months later, down the stretch they come toward launch. On Monday, the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission and Governor Andy Bashir announced their launch timeline, and assuming they hit it, they'll have gone from legalization to launch in under six months, with retail sportsbooks opening September 7th in time for NFL Week 1 and mobile launching September 28th. The state also approved a set of regulations Monday, though there remains a public comment period and plenty of opportunity for adjustments before launch. But for now, the notable details, now remember that 18 will be the legal betting age in Kentucky, so it will be legal to advertise sports betting on college campuses but not at high schools, middle schools, or elementary schools. I love that they had to spell that out. Uh, The state won't allow, quote, false or misleading advertising, which one assumes means we won't see the term risk-free at all. Sportsbooks are free to offer bets on pro sports, college sports, or eSports, but fixed odds horse betting is not allowed, and there is no official league data mandate. Uh, Jeff, are you impressed with Kentucky's giddy-up here? And where do you set the line on when I'll stop making lame and obvious horse racing references when discussing Kentucky sports betting?
0: I think it's minus 300. You'll stop after the segment if I had to guess. <laughs> okay. Um, we're still, by the way, at, uh, you know, plus 250 that I'm going to stop saying thank you, chef, uh, anytime <laughs> this summer. But, yeah, no, I'm impressed by the quick turnaround from legalization to launch here in Kentucky. I mean, of course, being that there's like 437 other states that have already done this, you know, copy and paste job mm-hmm. is just fine if I were in charge. But, you know, beggars, choosers, et cetera. The 18 age, you know, is is fascinating. Um, It's kind of weird to me that a state would allow that now, um, you know, with new legislation as we're still in the midst of the great sports betting American freak out. But, you know, shrugging shoulders, emoji, 18, 21, whatever, although I'll whisper quietly that really it should be 21. (laughs) I don't think you have to whisper it quietly. (laughs) It really should be, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it, it, every I don't know twenty. It, it seems like twenty one seems a more reasonable age to start allowing the eighteen kids people are in high school. You know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we could say oh they'll be betting offshore, blah blah blah, but I don't think they would be. You know, <laughs> I mean, like I, I I don't think there's a need to have to draw people in at age eighteen. That, right. That's all I'm saying. And if and if they do want to be betting at
1: that age um i have witnessed with my own eyes and and i'm not talking about my own son but i have witnessed with my own eyes other people's teenage kids have their dad open up an account and and right the the dad lets them bet some some long shot parlays and have some fun with it and so yeah there's certainly plenty of that going on i'm with you that i don't love allowing 18 19 20 year olds to bet i think 21 is a a more appropriate age i guess is it uh Briandor Shawal has said that she actually thinks 25 would be the appropriate age based on the, the development of the human brain. But yeah. um, at the same time, if in your state horse betting is legal at those ages, then I guess you can't justify sports betting being 21. Uh, the, whatever the age cutoff is, it kind of has to be the same for both. Yeah. Um, well,
0: kind of, I mean, horse betting like in Jersey, I guess it, it must be 18. Cause I was definitely going to the track when I was younger than 18, but, uh, and at least you know I guess when they made those laws in the old days you had to like get to the track. Right, right. That's true that if you, uh, that
1: there could be a case maybe for even in person at 18 right. and online at 21 That's is a little yeah, 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 I'm not sure. Um as as far as the speed of Kentucky launching um this is not going to be record speed but it, but it, you know it's in the top handful and uh It really should be the norm at this point. These states like Ohio that took over a year or, you know, North Carolina, I think is going to end up taking eight or nine months. I get dotting I's and crossing T's, but the blueprints are there and and the operators are all experienced. And and there's really no good excuse for not getting up and running within about six months nowadays. I I actually I kind of get where that Massachusetts legislator was coming from last year when he said we'll be up and running by football season, meaning that launch would take about a month if you don't know the precedent and the way that it works, it does feel like something that should be doable quickly if it's a priority. Um, so, I mean, I guess I got just say good for Kentucky for making it a priority and, and not wasting time. Um, I, I guess if I want to be critical of them for anything, it's just asking the question, why does mobile take three weeks longer than retail? But, you know, they're not the first state to stagger those and uh, and launch retail first. Yeah. So.
0: Good for Um, Kentucky.
1: Yes. Well done, Kentucky, assuming that they uh, hit those targets that they're setting for themselves. Yes. Let's talk poker, uh, specifically the World Series of Poker, and specifically the biggest, richest WSOP main event ever, as the previous record of 8,773 entrants was crushed this year, the final number landing on 10,043. That meant a prize pool just shy of $94 million. And the WSOP brass landed on an extremely top-heavy payout structure that was almost unanimously criticized in the poker community. First place pays $12.1 million, beating the record $12 million awarded to Jamie Gold in 06. But back in 06, only 10% of the field cashed. For many years now, the WSOP min-event has paid 15%. So it's spread out differently, and we have $12.1 million at the top, but under $1 million for ninth place. As for the situation in the tournament, as we record this Thursday morning, there are 49 players remaining. And you've surely heard of none of them, because I've barely heard of any of them. Uh, The biggest names remaining, and I'm putting biggest names in uh, scare quotes here, Alec Torelli, Toby Lewis, Sam Stein, and Maurice Hawkins. Uh, Not ideal. There are no women left. The last two females were eliminated Inside the top 100, but outside the top 50 on Wednesday. Nate Silver also made it to Wednesday before getting bounced in 91st place on a brutal set-over-set cooler. My guy Moneymaker had a good run, but not good enough to create a second wave of book sales for me. He finished 432nd. Pro boxer Ryan Garcia also cashed, as did Davis Maddox's favorite poker player, Tom Dwan, and several former main event champs, including Joe Hashem, Johnny Chan, and the aforementioned Jamie Gold but the headline remains that number 10043 jeff any guesses or theories as to why poker appears to be booming again any opinions on the payout structure and any other comments on the tournament
0: yeah the poker boom's interesting uh i mean i maybe it's cyclical maybe that i don't know okay. maybe maybe people like have money to burn from like covid money or nfts or mm-hmm. you know the stock market uh I don't know. I mean, maybe – all right, how about this? How about this for a deep sociological view? Maybe there's a hunger for connection and community, and poker provides that. Interesting. Okay. How about that? Because the boom can't – it can't really be explained by online poker. So few states have have it legal now. Right. And from what I understand, like it's not – like high stakes online poker is not even fun anymore because of the solvers and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, uh, let's go with D. Like maybe there is like a little bit of hunger for community, you know, and these like 25, 28, 30-year-olds who have like grown up in like this, you know – hyper-connected world and you know i've seen a lot of stats like i saw one stat recently uh the number of high school seniors who hang out with friends at least twice a week has dropped from like 60 percent 20 years ago to like 20 percent today right hang out in person right and so like maybe there's a whole generation of people that are like st- don't even realize it that are like starving to like with other human beings and and i mean is there a better i mean for my money there's no better way to spend time with human beings than playing poker with friends you know like (laughs) for real like that's it's just fun like you know so maybe maybe there's something there i mean i'm not a sociologist i'm not even sure how to spell or pronounce the term sociologist (laughs) but uh i don't know like i i really i I, I was thinking about this question and i i wonder if that if there's any part of that that is there's some, some truth to it but who knows what do I you think, think I think uh
1: all of those theories have some validity and and that's a particularly interesting one that that there's especially I think the pandemic did a lot of different things in terms of like the money that people have getting people back into playing poker because it was one of the few things they could do when they were stuck inside for x number of months and then just that that social element that you point out uh I think uh I think there's definitely something to that it it's <laughs> I as a natural introvert, I can't totally relate to that feeling. I like to play poker for the thrill of the game and not for the social aspect at all. If anything, I find the interactions with other humans somewhat uh some something that turns me off and i so I play <laughs> online more but um but i but no, there's definitely something to that and I've actually i've been thinking maybe once once I saw that record get smashed, I decided maybe I would uh. Pitch a, a deep dive article in the next couple of weeks, exploring this question and trying to talking to some insiders in poker and getting their sense of what the reason, various reasons are. Um, so I so I won't go too deep on all of the many possible reasons, but I'll I'll throw one other one out there for now is that the main event buy in never changes. Um, it well it changed once it was five thousand dollars in 1971 and then ten thousand dollars in 1972, but it's been ten thousand ever since. And so due to inflation, 10000 now is equal to 6000 20 years ago when Moneymaker won. So, you know, if the buy-in were going up with inflation, it would cost like 17000 now. And then mm-hmm. you would not get $10,000 entrants at that price point. So by keeping the buy-in $10,000, it's become a little closer to an everyman tournament than it used yeah. to be. Um, so, you know, it, poker, while poker is obviously in pretty good shape... Maybe it's a stretch to say that it's booming again, it, or certainly not to the extent that it appears based on the entry numbers for this one tournament. It's
0: mm, a good point.
1: Um, and I'll just note on the payout structure, I think it's really poor. It's just so blatantly obvious that they got together and said, we have to have a record first place prize, so let's go $12.1 million. And so basically every single other person who cashes suffers while one person at to the top benefits. I, I think they really blew it here. They could have gone with, 10.5 million and still would have been the second biggest first place prize ever. And, and then they can spread the rest out better. It would be really cool if once the final nine are determined, they all get together and agree that whoever wins is giving whoever finishes ninth, a hundred thousand dollars to get ninth place up to a million. But mm. you know, good luck getting them all to agree to that, especially the big stacks who are unlikely to have to worry about finishing ninth.
0: Right. Right. So. Yeah, I don't know. I uh, all I know is I tried one. I played a poker tournament once. I busted out in about three minutes. I said I can't. I'm. <laughs> this is not for me. What was the buy-in and where was it? It was in Atlantic City. I don't uh-huh. know. Small, like thirty dollars, fifty dollars. I have no idea. But it was. I, I thought you know. I've been playing poker my whole life with my friends. I said, and, you know, the, this was like around the money maker time. And I right. said, oh, I could do this. You know, this is going to be a piece of cake. I remember I said I was like shaking like a leaf. I was yep. like, you know, I was like, this is. I am not built for this. Oh, well, you gave it a shot. I did, I did. All right. Uh,
1: our final news story this week is a follow-up on something we've been following off and on the last couple of months. Sports Illustrated reported new details Monday in the Alabama baseball betting scandal. And the big one is that Burt Neff, who allegedly placed the bet that aroused suspicion, started out trying to wager $100,000 on the Alabama LSU game at the BetMGM Sportsbook at Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati a sports book where the total handle for all sports bets for the month of April was $98,810. Uh, after the bet size was denied, Neff apparently begged staffers to let him bet on the game and told them he had inside information. Uh, security footage showed Neff exchanging texts with Alabama coach Brian Bohannon, who was later fired, with Bohannon reportedly telling Neff his ace starting pitcher would miss that day's start. Separately, SI reported that Xavier Baseball is also under some sort of NCAA investigation related to Neff. Uh, But back to the details of the Alabama bets. Jeff, I give you the floor to find creative ways to call Neff
0: and Bohannon stupid. They're so stupid that Joel and Ethan Cohen are thinking of using this as a jumping off point (laughs) for their next film. Solid. They're so stupid they would have been outsmarted by Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern in Home Alone. (laughs) So it's all going to be movie references, huh? Uh, I, I've run out of, i uh, yeah. run out of them. Uh, but it's really unbelievable. I mean, it's serious. saying, can you imagine saying, like, "Please let me place this bet. I have inside information." <laughs> I, I can't. I was having a hard time coming up with something like analogous. Like, I mean, it's like getting pulled over by a cop. And he says license and registration. He says, and he and then you say, would you also like some cocaine? You know, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like begging. Like, I mean, how you just you don't. It's like you do, you just don't know like that. That's going to get you flagged. I mean, right. but even if you don't know anything about anything, how could you think that it's like? I I don't know. It's yeah. It, it's un really so unbelievable. Like how this happened, like this. You know, yeah. it just does not make any sense.
1: Yeah, and uh, it has me wondering if Bohannon understood the level of idiot he was dealing with in Neff. I would love to see those texts and see if Bohannon was being at all smart about it and and telling Neff not to bet too much, and it was just Neff being an idiot. Because, um, I mean, th- that's the one thing we know for sure based on this reporting. Neff is a five-alarm moron. Uh, yeah. a, a, for trying to bet $100,000, but then even more so, as you said, for telling the sportsbook staff he had inside information. So he's a moron. Bohannon is at least dumb for associating with such a moron, but I would love to see the text to determine if Bohannon is also a total moron or just— a little bit dumb and made the mistake of buddying up with the wrong guy.
0: Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, I did call this. I said there's not this stupid name, Burton F. It's a dumb name.
1: Right, <laughs> That's true. Sometimes you can't judge a book by its cover yeah. and, a, and a moron by his his dumb-sounding name. You're right, yeah. <laughs> um, one thing, though, now now that we know all these details, I feel like maybe we should backtrack slightly On crediting US integrity or or whatever other monitoring systems caught these guys.
0: Right, right, right. It would have
1: been impossible not to catch them. Um, Now, this is still an argument for legalization. You know, if this, this was an offshore, a bookie. They wouldn't have been able to bring this to any authorities. But but I'm backing down on celebrating the brilliance of the people who caught them. You know, credit to the system for springing into action and and taking the game off the board at sports books all over the place and all that stuff. But a guy tries to bet one hundred grand on a college baseball game and then tells you he has inside information. Congratulations, detective.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it it was it it was a it it was a gimme.
2: It was a gimme. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview.
1: The eyes of the sports betting legalization world are on Florida these days, not only because it's the third largest state by population, but also because it's been the wildest roller coaster ride in terms of sports betting and the law. It was legal or at least active for about a month, then it wasn't, now maybe it will be again. Joining us now to help make sense of it is Robert M. Jarvis, a professor at Shepherd Broad College of Law at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. Bob, welcome to Gamble On.
2: Well, thank you and thank you for having me.
1: So let's back up about two weeks to the appeals court in DC reversing the prior decision and saying yes, the compact between the Seminole tribe and the state of Florida is legal. Were you caught off guard by this or or did you see it coming to some extent?
2: No, actually, I was caught off guard by the trial court's decision in 2021. I had expected that Judge Friedrich, the district judge, uh, would summarily dismiss uh, West Flagler's challenge. Um, So I think everybody was surprised when uh, she went the other way um we always knew uh i mean as soon as we saw her opinion her opinion uh was a terribly written opinion internally inconsistent made absolutely no sense we always knew that it was going to get reversed and so you know i was fully expecting the dc circuit uh to rule the way it did uh the only thing that caught me a little bit by surprise was that it was a unanimous decision by the D.C. Circuit, a 3 nothing decision. Um, after the oral arguments in December, uh, I think most of us felt it was going to be a 2-1 decision. But, you know, I guess in the end, um, all of the members of the panel uh, realized that Judge Friedrich really had uh, misruled. Hmm.
1: so uh not not to pit uh gaming industry legal minds against each other mm-hmm. but uh a previous uh guest of ours uh daniel wallach was he was taking the opposite stance all along that he felt that uh the compact went against Igra and so he Thought the the first uh, the previous ruling by Friedrich was uh, was what he was expecting. So you you've just never seen eye to eye with Dan Wallach about this issue and where it was headed.
2: No, and in fact, uh, Dan is a friend. Uh, I respect Dan, but Dan was hopelessly wrong, and I told him that <laughs> on a panel uh, that we did for the Gaming Law Review, um, and he insisted that I was hopelessly wrong. I guess. I was right, and he was wrong, but no, I mean, Dan was never right, and um, I think that Dan's arguments were as specious as uh, Judge Friedrich's uh, conclusions.
0: Listen, so now that this you know, this June 30th decision by the D.C. Court of Appeals, does it mean that as of now, there is no legal obstacles for the Seminoles to offer sports betting?
2: Uh, no. Because first of all, they the Seminoles have to wait for the D.C. Circuit's mandate to become effective. That won't happen until August 21. It is possible, but highly, highly unlikely that West Flagler will take an appeal. West Flagler has three avenues in that respect. It could ask the panel to reconsider its decision. Um, given that it was the unanimous decision, I don't see them going down that road. The second option would be for West Flagler to ask the entire D.C. Circuit to review the panel's decision. Um, that's a little more possible, but I don't think it would be successful. I think the D.C. Circuit all along has been thinking to itself, what the heck are we doing uh, in the middle of this fight over Florida gambling law, which has nothing to do with us at all? So, I don't see the entire DC Circuit wanting to spend any time on this issue. And then the third avenue would be for West Flagler to file an appeal to the US Supreme Court. Um, it takes four justices to agree to hear an appeal. It takes five to overrule. There's just no way looking at the lineup of the current court um, that there'll be that the court would be interested in taking this case and would overrule it. So I think West Flag was pretty much out of options. Now what could happen, and what I do expect will happen momentarily, is that a lawsuit will be filed in a Florida state court, relying upon the Florida Constitution, and in particular, a 2018 amendment to the Florida Constitution, and will argue to a state court judge that while the D.C. Circuit has decided there is no federal impediment to the Seminoles having sports betting, there is a state impediment. And that lawsuit, I expect to also be quickly disposed of, quickly you know dismissed. But again, if uh, whoever brings that lawsuit, and we think we know who's going to bring the lawsuit, um, gets lucky and gets a judge like Judge Friedrich, well, then it'll be another couple of years before the Seminoles can start offering sports betting.
1: So what are the the wider implications of this? Like, what does this mean for other tribes in other states and then just for the spread of legal sports betting in general?
2: Right. So this decision now is going to be a decision that every tribe with gaming interests will use, will run to their state and will say, we want what the Seminoles got from Florida. Here is the blueprint Let's make it happen. So I think that this will further uh, will lead to a further expansion of sports betting. Um, and, you know, uh, eventually Florida is going to have sports betting. I think it'll be very soon. But even if there's this state lawsuit, um, California, which uh, voted against sports betting uh, in 2022, but did so for very um Bizarre reasons that had nothing to do with the popularity of sports betting and everything to do with the tribes in California being at odds with each other. Um, they're going to get that resolved. So California is going to come on board. We already have, depending on how you count, 34 to 38 states that have legalized sports betting in one form or another. Uh, so Florida's going to come on board, California is going to come on board. And that will leave only a couple of small holdouts, like Utah and Hawaii, they'll never have sports betting because they have strong religious moral reasons, uh, objections to gambling. And then the only big state that will be left without sports betting will be Texas, and Texas is a um, very complicated situation. They have a lieutenant governor who's very much against betting. They have a, consti- a state constitutional provision that they would have to overcome. So they're going to be on the sidelines for, I would think, quite some time. But other than that, we're pretty much going to have sports betting all across America.
1: So in terms of the uh, a potential timeline of when these other states and tribes in these other states may react to what's going on in Florida, is it like a California would you see them sort of waiting until this all settles and all the lawsuits are done and Florida is fully launched before we see it have this effect in other states?
2: No, I, I don't think any tribe is is waiting. I think what every tribe is doing, if it doesn't already have full sports betting, both in person and mobile, is they're they're going to run to their states, uh to their state legislatures and say, We want this. And it, you know. It's always difficult to talk about gambling uh as a as a macro subject. It's not a macro subject, it's a micro subject. Every state is its own uh unique situation. California will not it's not at all about what was happening in Florida. It's about the fact that you have literally hundreds of tribes in uh, California, some large, some small, some with gambling, some without gambling. There's revenue sharing. There are also uh, the uh, sworn enemies of the tribes who are the card rooms and you know the fight that they always put up. Um, so uh, the California tribes just need to get their act together. They all need to be um, in agreement as to what they want, and then the voters will give it to them. But as I say, it, it is an important ruling because it says now that under federal law, you a tribe can take a bet that is placed off of its land um, as long as the server that is accepting the bet is on Indian land. So wherever that has been an issue for a tribe anywhere in the country. Now they have a blueprint. Now they can go to their state legislature and say, look, we have a federal appellate court that unanimously held that as long as you, the state, are willing to give us permission, we can have sports, mobile sports betting. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are already states that have mobile sports betting. So in those states, the opinion, you know, doesn't do anything. Right.
0: All right. Now now for something completely different. Uh, You're also the author of Gambling Under the Swastika a book about how the Nazis viewed gambling. Uh, I have not seen this turned into a show on the History Channel, though I am all in when it does happen. listen, how how, how did this topic come to you? Um, What were some of the more surprising things you found out? And my biggest question, were their roulette tables, were they single swastika or double swastika
2: tables? (laughs) Oh, I assume they were double swastika. (laughs) 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 Well, thank you for asking me about the book. Um, I actually was doing, I, I, I was finishing up A textbook on a law school textbook on the Holocaust. And in doing research for that book, I kept at various points stumbling across oblique references that the Nazis had gambling. Um, And I had always just assumed, and from the little bit that I had read, um, that the Nazis did not have gambling. But as I said, I kept stumbling over these very, you know, oblique references that would just say the Nazis had a casino, the Nazis had a lottery. And it's like, what? Um, And so after I finished the Holocaust book, which was a massive undertaking, it was a thousand page book. I mean, it, it was... Uh, I years and years of work. I needed um, a lighter project, and I said, you know, there can't be that much to write about. And um, so I went off and I and I looked, and what I found out was that the Nazis had three types of authorized gambling. One, they had a casino. Then they had the casino because the casino provided them with hard currency, hard foreign currency, because mostly the people who were playing in that. Uh, casino where um, uh, with tourists and so that was a way to get dollars and pounds and other foreign currencies that the Nazis needed. The second type of authorized gambling was horse racing um, which fit within the Nazis eugenics program the idea of making the perfect man while the perfect man needed the perfect horse so it was a way to improve bloodlines which is the you know, one of the reasons that horse racing has always existed to improve the the bloodlines. And then the third type of gambling was a national lottery, uh, which was designed to raise money for social welfare programs, um, and was sold very much as a patriotic duty to help uh, your fellow citizens who were less fortunate. And then when the war came, it was turned into a patriotic cause as a way to um, support the war effort. Um, and so I, I just found that fascinating. Uh, if you've seen the book, you know, it's very short. It's about 200 pages, uh, because that once you got beyond those three types of gambling, that's pretty much all um, that the Nazis had. But it, it it's until my book, no one had written on it. It was very hard to find information. Um, I, I don't, uh, I, I, I'm not fluent in German, so I had to have a lot of help from translators. Uh, a lot of the documents, as you can imagine, that I needed were in Germany or just didn't exist because they had been lost because of the war. Um, so it, it was a challenge, but I mean, it, it, it shone some light, I thought, on I, I overlooked an overlooked and interesting subject.
0: Hmm. Yeah, Hitler was betting like minus 110 favorites the whole way until he invaded Russia. That was a big parlay that he he really blew it.
2: Yes. I mean, (laughs) many people have said, you know, that Hitler was uh, the world's was history's greatest gambler. Um, But in the book, I do quote him talking about gambling and his views on gambling. And he was particularly interested in the lottery and really saw the lottery as a way to raise money for social welfare projects. So I, I you know, I, I think for those folks who are interested in the Nazi regime, it's it's an interesting side that has yeah. not previously been covered.
0: Perhaps he lost a mustache prop bet. Also, now I'm thinking about <laughs> it.
1: There's a sequel to this book that, to be written, apparently. I, I,
0: I'm so glad I'm Jewish. It, the, <laughs> just the never-ending stream of Hitler jokes. Right, I'll just, thank God.
1: I I also, I just love that, that Bob said he was looking for something lighter light, for his next right. book. So, <laughs> yes, lighter than the Holocaust, but you still kept it in Nazi Germany for your next book. Not right. that light.
2: You know, as I say, as as I was doing the Holocaust book and and kept stumbling over these things, I kept putting them on the side because there was no place for them in the Holocaust book. But when I finished the Holocaust book, you know, I was sitting there and my publisher said, and what's next? And I said, well, you know, I have some material um would you be interested and uh the, the book has a lot of photographs the one photograph that i could not get because it doesn't exist ava braun who was of course hitler's mistress and eventually his wife she apparently loved to go to the casino and gamble and there are no pictures of her mm. at the casino because when she would come into the casino she was at a high roller table you know her own table with her entourage and there, there were no pictures of ever taken of her, or if they're where, you know, they're not published, they're, they're nowhere, they don't exist anywhere. Uh, that would have been a great picture if I could have gone in it.
0: For sure. That's wild stuff. Yeah. yeah,
1: this has been great. Uh, what, one of the only uh, interviews anyone will ever listen to that delves into the Florida sports betting situation and Nazi Germany. I guess you are the foremost combined expert on these topics. Well, so. I
2: think I'm not only the foremost expert, but the, the only expert, and <laughs> right. maybe the only person who really cares about those <laughs> subjects. But there you go. It it's just great. shows you, though, how gambling does. Um, gambling is universal. And no matter what society you are talking about, no matter what political system you are talking about, and no matter what time period in history you are talking about, there is gambling. And that was really, you know, the thing that that drove me to do the book, that um, no matter where you are, when you are, wherever you are, there is gambling.
1: Very well said. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Bob. Thank you.
2: Two men. Two men ten thousand dollars will they run it up or blow it all it's time to check in on the gamble on bankroll
1: let's update our betting bankroll and I'm going to try to talk at double speed to minimize the pain. How does that sound, Jeff? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. All Go right. ahead. this all is right. bad.
1: <laughs> we only had three bets graded, all three lost. My boxing bet was voided. Virgil Ortiz Jr. dropped out of the fight due to health issues. It's a whole serious thing not worth getting into here, but maybe we're lucky my bet on him was voided. Uh, I had Murray over at Tsitsipas. I was up two sets to one when they called it a night, uh, then lost in five the, uh, the next day, so that cost us $135. Your bet on Red Sox Rangers on under 10 final score was 10 6. So, you know, one of them was under 10. Uh, we lost uh, $110 yeah. on that. Yeah. And uh, Urias under five and a half strikeouts, he went six innings and struck out eight. You'll Mm -hmm. never bet a a minus 155 favorite again. Never,
0: ever again.
1: (laughs) We lost 155 there. So we lost $400 for the week. We're now down by 3,013, which may be the bankroll's all-time worst. I can't remember. Um, We also have $1,627 on hold in Futures bets. That leaves us with $5,360 available to bet with this week. And let's turn it around starting right now. You're up first, Jeff.
0: Uh, I, did I place a bet on Madison to lead the league in rushing yards last week? You, you did indeed, yes. All right, I got to bet, do another rushing Bijan to lead the league in rushing yards. Ooh, okay. Also, twenty bucks to win three hundred plus fifteen hundred bet rivers.
1: Just twenty bucks uh, to win three hundred. Okay, and we already That's have it. a lot. You're, I'm trying to remember. You have some Bijan uh, offensive rookie of the year stock already, right?
0: I think I do. I don't yeah. know. I'm just throwing shit against the wall here, man. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully, uh, Bijan Bichon- I mean, related it, 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 stick. Listen. You know the Falcons want to run the ball. They they right. they, they spent the draft capital on the guy. Right. He's they say he's one of the best prospects you know in, in modern you know NFL history right. at the running back position. Give him the ball. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And running
1: back is one of the positions that you can come right out as a rookie and put up up stats to compare with anyone else. So, all right. Um, I'm going to get in my first NBA futures bet of the season. Uh, This money will be parked for a solid 10 months or so. Uh, I like the price on Scoot Henderson of the Trailblazers for Rookie of the Year. He's as high as plus 400. It's basically a three-man race on paper, and and to me, they're all pretty even. It's uh, Wembenyama, who is listed as a big favorite, Scoot, and Chet Holmgren. I realize this is extreme oversimplification, but I'd say they each have about a 25% chance and then a 25% chance left over for the whole rest of the field, every other rookie combined. But honestly, gun to my head, I would make Scoot the favorite because, first off, I'm sure they're going to trade Lillard. And so Scoot's going to have the ball in his hands and be a main scoring option for a team that doesn't really need to win games. So he's going to put up big stats. Holmgren, he'll be good probably, but that OKC team is kind of ready to contend and and he's not going to be expected to do the bulk of the scoring. And he'll probably be load managed a little as a skinny big man coming off an injury. And Wemby, same deal. He'll be load managed somewhat. And as we've seen already in summer league, he'll have some good games and probably a few really bad games. Uh, And you have the new rule that a player has to be in 65 games to win these awards. Legit chance. Scoot is the only one of these three who even qualifies. Uh, And I figure now is the time to pounce at this price plus 400. He was a little shorter after Wemby had that bad first game of summer league. And then Wemby had a better game and then Scoot suffered a shoulder strain that may keep him out of summer league. So he was down around plus 300. Now he's back to plus 400 perfect price. If he's 25% to win, he should be plus 300. I think he's at least 25% to win. So let's bet a hundred dollars to win 400.
0: All right. Um, I've been looking at my uh, player exposures for my uh, best ball portfolios Mm -hmm. and uh, boy, Oh boy, do I need the chargers to come through this year? (laughs) And I'm, I am, I am high as heck on this team. Uh, You know, they've always been, they've been a solid offensive team and they've been running in second gear you know, this whole time. Now they got Kellen Moore calling the plays. It's going to open up the offense. Uh, They drafted Quinton Johnson. So they have like, they have arguably the best three receiver set in the NFL. They got Austin Eckler. They got Gerald Everett, who's a fantastic receiving tight end. Uh, Justin, if, if, if all this clicks, it's going to, it's going to click because Justin Herbert is having an MVP type year Mm -hmm. as such. Give me and also the same, plus fifteen hundred, twenty bucks to win three hundred, Herbert, MVP.
1: Okay. You know, as as you were starting to explain that, I, I figured it was headed toward Herbert MVP, and uh I was not expecting his number to be as high as as plus fifteen hundred. So that does yeah. sound like a pretty good price for a guy who yeah, if they happen to win that division, if they have a better record than the Chiefs,
0: yeah, I know Herbert possi- probably the
1: MVP of the league.
0: Yeah. yeah. All right, give me fifty bucks instead. <laughs> You all right, so didn't.
1: 50 bucks at plus 1500 so yeah. that would win us $750.
0: All right. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, all right, yeah. good. Um, so baseball returns Friday. Uh, not all books have even posted odds for the Friday games yet. It's hard to find props and such. So uh, let's just do a straightforward money line bet, and it's a homer bet, uh, not a bet on someone to hit a home run. I mean, I'm being a homer. Uh, the Phillies are plus 110 at home against the Padres Friday night. The Padres? 43 and 47 they have a road record of 18 and 24 and yet they're favored on the road over the Phillies who are 48 and 41 and it's got to be because of the pitching matchup uh you Darvish a name everyone knows versus Christopher Sanchez a name nobody knows but Sanchez has been in the rotation for four weeks four starts 21 innings five earned runs allowed very solid Darvish his last four starts 21 in the third innings, 17 earned runs allowed. Uh, he's 36 years old. He's still a good pitcher. He's not a great pitcher anymore. The sports books are pricing this game as if he's still you, Darvish. We get the better team at home as a plus 110 dog. I'm a homer. $100 to win 110 on the Phillies tomorrow.
0: All right. I, I'm also got a little baseball bet for tomorrow. Uh, you, you might have heard of this guy. He's uh, originally from Japan, Otani. Uh, yes, heard the name, yeah. He's on the mound at home against the Astros. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's faced him twice this year. He's struck out six in one game, seven in the other. Uh, would you believe his prop is set at six and a half? Okay. As I said, he's home. The Astros are without Alvarez and Altuve. They're right. two best hitters. I got to imagine that the little tiny blister issue. Otani was having his finish. Otherwise, they wouldn't put him out there. He's on, running on, I think, nine or ten days rest. Uh, this looks like one of the biggest, like no-brainer bets I've seen this year at six and a half k's. I am taking the over at minus one ten. I'm betting three hundred and thirty dollars to do wow. it. Wow! This is a three-unit for me. <laughs> Boy, we are either
1: uh, we are either going to be coming in very excited next week and very happy about the way we've reversed our fortunes, or we're going to be just about out of money.
0: Fake I really money, like. I, I really like this bet. I, yeah, I mean, like, it makes I, sense. He, it's like an all righty lineup outside of Tucker Alvarez and no Alvarez and Altuve. I mean, that's too, uh, come on. That's, you know, that's, 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 that's too bad. So he doesn't have to worry about. He's already averaging six and a half Ks against the team this year. And obviously, you know, Otani is capable of putting, you know, 12 up. I, I was, I was, went. To, I didn't see a ladder yet on right, FanDuel. I, I right. might ladder this one up tomorrow. All right. But for purposes of our
1: bankroll, no ladder, just a single straight three unit bet. That's it. All right. <laughs> still alive. <laughs> Yes. If if nothing else, if we get to the end of the podcast and you feel alive, then I feel like we've accomplished something. Yeah, I think so. All right. Um, I'm going to finish up the bankroll segment with some boxing. Uh, Saturday night, main event on Showtime, Lightweights, Battle of Unbeatens, Frank Martin versus Artem Hartunian. An all-time mismatch in terms of ease of pronunciation of the names for an American like us. Frank Martin, anyone can do that. Artem Hartunian, a little more challenging. Uh, Not a mismatch in the ring, though, at least not in my opinion. In the opinion of bookmakers, however, it kind of is. Martin is like minus 1,400 and Hartunian. I'm seeing him as high as plus 740. I'm tempted to take a shot on Hartunian because I've watched video of him. He's good. He's versatile. He's clever. He's skilled. I think he can give Martin a tough fight, but I don't really think he'll win. So even at plus 740, I'm, I'm going to shy away from making that bet, even though it may have value. Uh, instead, I'll point out that I think Martin winning by decision is more likely than him winning by knockout, but the books have the KO at minus money and Martin by decision as high as plus 200. I think that's a great price. I think this fight is going the distance, so let's bet $75 to win 150, Frank Martin on points, and I felt much more excited about that bet before you went and got all whooped up betting 330 on Otani, I don't, but I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to make this like a triple unit or anything. We'll just stick with my 75 to win
0: 150. If you want to go to 100, I mean, what do you, you know, So 100 100
1: to win 200?
0: Yeah, even it out. All right, fine. You talked me into it.
1: 100 to win 200. Woo! Fired up! There you go. Feeling good. <laughs> all right. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to this week's guest, Bob Jarvis. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and Jeff at Jeff Edelstein and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to US for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Megaphone, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or anywhere else. And with that, Jeff, please take us out.
0: You know, the WNBA, which is a league that I routinely bet on and play DFS contest in, is clearly run by a bunch of morons, fools, and or idiots. Was <laughs> Burt Neff also run the WNBA? How else to explain the following? There were zero games on Monday, two games on Tuesday, and while there were five games Wednesday, they were staggered from noon to 10 p.m., and then there's no games on Thursday today because of their all-star break. Of course, all of this coincided with the MLB All-Star Break, meaning that the WNBA was almost quite literally the only game in town. Yeah. So instead of going all in and or all out, they went, to borrow a line from my kids, completely mid. The WNBA, which has ever so slowly been gaining popularity, I've even seen like games like lead the ESPN Sports Center stuff. Uh, they could and really should use the MLB All-Star Break to highlight what they do. Maybe run a quick mid-season tourney, maybe run full slates on these days, maybe team up with some sports books or some big promos, maybe do something, anything to draw attention to the sport. Terrible job, WNBA. Do better so we can all gamble on.